Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an artisan brew of hand-harvested, single-origin stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on tap we have Tina Chen, lead lawyer for the Time's Up campaign, on how to call time on sexual harassment, how to tell if your craft beer really is what it says on the bottle, and a tribute to Bollywood's most adored screen siren. But first, Donald Trump has had another busy week. The threat to world trade was our cover line. America's president has signed orders slapping heavy tariffs of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminium. Mr Trump has torn up the rulebook of global trade. We argued he's putting the world at risk of a trade war. Not since its inception at the end of the Second World War has the global trading system faced such danger. The tariffs are based on a little-used law that lets the president protect industry on grounds of national security. That excuse is self-evidently spurious. Most of America's imports of steel come from Canada, the European Union, Mexico and South Korea, America's allies. Other countries will now feel justified in copying this tactic to defend their own goals. Either Mr Trump will provoke a free-for-all of recrimination and retaliation that the WTO's courts cannot adjudicate, or the courts will second-guess America's national security needs, in which case Mr Trump may storm out of the organisation altogether. In all this, the World Trade Organisation should be referee, but its powers are limited. The collapse of the Doha round of trade talks in 2015, after 14 fruitless years, put needed reforms on hold indefinitely. Disputes that might have been swept into a new trade round have fallen to the WTO's dispute resolution machinery, which is too slow and too frail to carry the burden. The WTO has not kept pace with economic change. But trading nations need to remember that it's there for a reason. Without a ref, the whole game could collapse. Without the WTO, cross-border trade would continue. It is unstoppable, but the lack of norms and procedures would leave disputes to escalate. The fewer the rules, the more scope for mercantilist mischief and backsliding. Trade policy could be captured by special interests. Military power would hold greater sway in trade disputes than economic fair play. Transnational investment could drain away. That's why we argued fans of free trade must call out America's foul play. It is vital they make the intellectual case for rules-based trade. That will not be easy. For the first time in decades, their biggest foe is the man in the Oval Office. To find out how free trade can and should be defended, pick up a copy of this week's Economist. Or better yet, you can subscribe at subscriptions.economist.com. Even espionage has rules, at least in theory. Sergei Skripal was convicted of being a British double agent in Russian military intelligence, and he was allowed to move to Britain as part of a multilateral spy swap in 2010. 
but a week ago, he and his daughter were discovered unconscious in a small British city. They'd been poisoned with a rare nerve agent. Arkady Ostrovsky, our Russia correspondent, came on the week ahead, our current affairs show, to discuss how and why this assassination attempt took place. Whether this was Vladimir Putin or the Kremlin that ordered it is much harder to say, because the line between the state and criminal elements who are in the service of the state or used by the state is sometimes very, very hard to draw. And what this shows is actually the process of decaying or decomposition of the state function in Russia, which is very dangerous because the violence is decentralised. And you can listen to the rest of that interview by subscribing to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast app of choice happens to be. The Week Ahead is published every Friday. Economist Radio marked International Women's Day last week with an interview with Tina Chen. Ms Chen is the lead lawyer working on Time's Up's legal defence fund for victims of sexual harassment. Before that, she was the First Lady Michelle Obama's Chief of Staff and she shared with me her practical advice for young women entering the workforce today. Have confidence in yourself. Um, Use your voice um, when both professionally to get your ideas out on the table and also to speak up when you see something that's going wrong. And I would say this to young men as well. You know, one of the great things I've observed in this young generation coming up, and we saw this when we were combating sexual assault on campuses in the United States, is young men who are also standing beside, you know, young women and saying, we won't tolerate this. You know, this is not how we believe men should behave towards women. Um, uh, And this is, you know, we're not going to tolerate a culture um, that encourages that and we're going to change it. For now, that's often easier said than done. But you can hear our discussion of how to combat the culture of silencing and also whether those who've abused their position of power, including in the White House, past and present, should be held to account. It's all in The Economist Asks, Can Time's Up Bring Down Sexual Harassment? And if you like what we do, please take a second to rate us on your app too. It does keep us doing what we do best and make us do it even better. The latest episode of Babbage, our science and technology podcast, dove deep into matters marine. Farmed fish has overtaken beef as a protein source, but can it be sustainable? Fish farming has generally had a pretty bad press, with parasites, pollution and the destabilising of delicate shallow water ecosystems. It's also very expensive. Fish farms need lots of, well, fish farmers. But the currents are changing as our science correspondent, Hal Hodson, told Tim Cross. So the idea is to do away with the humans? As much as possible, yes. And this has just started. The first ever offshore fish farm is a thing called Ocean Farm 1, and it can house about 1.5 million salmon. And just to give an idea of scale, this thing is its absolutely enormous. It's its the size of the Eiffel Tower? or Yeah, it weighs about the same as the Eiffel Tower. It is about the same size in volume as St. Peter's Church in Rome. And it is packed with sensors that allow you to do things like automate when the fish get fed. Subscribe to Babbage for the rest of our ocean special, including mapping shipwrecks on the seabed and tackling the Herculean problem of plastic waste. Babbage is published every Wednesday. You can read more about all of these topics in the Technology Quarterly in this week's edition of The Economist. High demand may be easy to meet when your farm is the size of a cathedral. But as an article in the Middle East and Africa section explained, in Kenya, a new source of demand is putting unprecedented strain on what was previously a stable resource. (coughs) 
Indulge me. Baringo County in Kenya's Rift Valley is a hard place. Water is short in the dusty bush, so businesses tend not to thrive. But one industry is booming. Next to a lorry, a woman in a shimmering dress says she has brought 100 donkeys from Muyale, two days' drive north. She expects to make several thousand dollars from the sale. Unlike many of their ancestors, though, these donkeys won't be going on to noble careers pulling plows. In China, donkey skins are used to make a gelatin called ujiao that is used as traditional medicine. The meat is also a delicacy. The abattoir in Baringo has been running for almost two years, slaughtering hundreds of donkeys a day to satisfy Chinese demand. Not so great for the donkeys, but as it turns out, excellent for the local economy. The slaughterhouse employs some 400 people. Isaac Kibengo says that he came from Kitale, 200 kilometers—that's 125 miles away—to work packaging skins. He gets health insurance, a housing allowance at about 20,000 shillings—that's $200 per month—a good salary in Kenya. They even pay on time, he says. Cue Western animal charities sticking their hoof in, braying with outrage. They might do better helping farmers increase supply to take advantage of a doubling in the price. To be fair, this is hard since donkeys reproduce slowly. Yet it can be done. Banning a trade that raises money for the poor makes asses out of those who claim to speak for them. Now, would you know a dead pony from a magic hat? No, I'm not talking about the donkey trade any more. Thank goodness, it's time for beer, but not just any old beer. As a piece from the pages of our science section drew out. Go into a trendy pub, and the beer list will be accompanied by tasting notes as purple as in any upmarket wine bar. The grassy aromas and citrus notes come from the flowers of Humulus lupulus or the hop plant. Brewers therefore tend to be rather particular about obtaining specific types of hops from specific plants in specific places. The problem is that one hop looks very much like another. Unscrupulous growers can adulterate high-quality hops with cheaper varieties, which can affect a beer's taste. Detecting doctored shipments can be difficult. Existing tests focus on measuring levels of chemical telltales, such as essential oils, but they are not very sensitive, typically requiring adulteration of 10% or more before triggering an alert. But a new technique borrowed from experts in honey and olive oil shows promise. It relies on the fact that not all atoms of a given element are created equal. Atoms of a given element with different numbers of neutrons are known as isotopes of that element. Levels of those isotopes vary between soils, and different varieties of plant absorb them in different quantities. Measuring these wonky atoms has proved twice as sensitive as the old chemical tests. Expect the first bottles of isotopically certified beer in your local soon. And finally, our back page paid tribute to a woman who was incontrovertibly the real deal, Bollywood's number one female superstar. The media complained that Sri Devi was such an enigma, so intensely reserved. When she left her makeup van for a shoot, an assistant holding her poorloo out of the dust, her bouncers would shout. No pictures when she walks, and so the lensman would wait in a tizzy for the moment when she would pause and turn her perfect face to them. But still, she preferred not to talk. 
the mystery only increased her allure. She made three hundred films, was heroine number one in Bollywood for two decades, and won six Filmfare Awards, India's equivalent of the Oscars. In front of the camera, she felt and was quite different, totally uninhibited. She could go from flirtatious to annoyed to rapturous in a matter of seconds. Twitch her nose with disdain, or slap a line of men across the face, and all the while keep dancing. On screen, in a hundred different guises, she was immortal. Her snake-shimmying-inspired Egyptian belly dancers and her likeness as Benazir, a fierce Pashtun character, was woven for years into carpets in Afghanistan. After all, she had never really had a normal life. She had been playing to camera, loving it even more than it loved her, since she was a child in Tamil Nadu in the south, starring in Tamil and Telugu films. Her lines too were said by other people when she first went to Bollywood because she knew no Hindi, not a word. Little did they realize that she had spoken her own lines in Malayalam and Canada films, other languages of the South, without knowing what they meant either. She memorized them phonetically, finding the right emotions somehow. Real life didn't come so easily. She married late after young heartbreak. That had all settled down, and she had taken fifteen years out to bring up her daughters. At home, she led a quiet, very systematic life until she re-emerged in 2012 to make English Vinglish, a comedy about a mother mocked by her family for her bad English, who went secretly to classes and surprised them all. But then she had always sprung surprises, bewitching a billion people as the shy girl from Shivakasi who could go from silent doll to live wire. In the split second it took for the cameras to roll, and here she is. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. But as the credits roll, do remember you can write to us radio at economist dot com. Or on Twitter at Economist Radio, we love to hear from you, and you can find out more of all of the stories featured here online at Economist.com or on your podcast app. I'm Anne McElvoy in London, shimmying off into the sunset. This is the Economist.